Hi, this is Ron Hogan, and you're listening to Life Stories, a Beatrice podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and about the art of writing memoir. And my guest today is Gideon Lewis Krauss, and his book is A Sense of Direction, published by Riverhead. And thanks for being with us today, Gideon. Thank you so much for having me, Ron. My pleasure. Yeah, it's a great book, and I want to dive into it. One of the ways that this story begins, the first big pilgrimage that you go on in Santiago. It sounds like it something you kind of learned about the morning after you'd been out drinking. With yeah, the yeah. Well, the, the whole thing really started as a lark. I'd been writing for magazines in Berlin. I'd had this fellowship there and been writing for magazines, but uh, I knew that I wanted to be involved in a longer project. Wasn't sure what it was going to be, and then was visiting my friend Tom, who's also a writer, in Estonia, where he was living and going through sort of a similar feelings of um, stagnation and self-doubt, and he's and at some point I, I I played this up a little bit in in the book, exaggerated a little bit, but I actually don't have a very good recollection of our first conversation about this. Apparently, I had agreed. I had he had told me he was going to spend the next summer walking across Spain, and this idea was immediately appealing to me. And apparently, I agreed right away that I would do this. And then I got back to Berlin, and he. He and I talked on the phone, and he said, okay, so, you know, when are, we have to figure out when we're going to start doing this. And I said, well, wait, what, what exactly did I agree to? So then I looked it up, and I saw that it was this medieval Catholic pilgrimage across northern Spain where most people start on the French border, and it's about 550 miles. You walk 15 to 20 miles a day. You stay in these hostels at night. And that over the last... 30 years, but especially over the last 15, it's become hugely popular with a young, secular crowd. And something about it just was immediately appealing to me. I hemmed and hawed a little bit for a couple of months when Tom was trying to get me on board, and finally by that spring, I said, all right, let's do this. Um, I tried to come, tried to justify why exactly it was appealing to me, and I spent a long, long time trying to figure out how I could write a magazine piece about it or just find something that would justify this summer spent walking across Spain. And finally, I just said, you know what? I'm not going to worry so much about justifying this. This just has an intrinsic appeal for reasons I don't totally understand. I'm going to go do it. And then finally, right right before I left, I had managed to um, get McSweeney's interested in a long reported piece about it. So we left. We met up at the first week in June, and we started walking, like, June 10th, I think it was. And three days into it, we stopped to take a break um, for a couple of hours so that we could, or for a day as it turned out, so that we, we could both write. And I sat down to write up my notes. And I thought, oh, well, you know, I'll send these out as an email to my friends so that they at least know what's going on. And also, I knew that if I started emailing my friends about it, that that would be an incentive to keep taking good notes. Because once I'd started something, then there would be some level of expectation that I had to live up to. So I sent out this first email that was about 3,000 words to maybe 10 people. And one of my friends in Berlin wrote back and he said, this is going to be a book. And I said, what are you talking about? This is, this is not going to be a book. And he said, no, 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 this is going to be a book. And I said, you're crazy. And then by the end, by, you know, five weeks later when we got to Santiago, I thought, oh, actually, maybe this could be part of a book. Although then it, it took a while to figure out exactly what that book was going to be. In the middle of doing this this first walk across Spain for the, the Santiago pilgrimage, that was actually where you came across what would then become the second component. Yes. <laughs> well, that, that was part of the, how the whole thing happened, is about two weeks into the, this walk across Spain, we met 
some Japanese pilgrims, and I ended up sitting next to them at a dinner in, in one of these hostels, and I was just making idle conversation, and I said, well, do you have anything like this in Japan? And the woman said, oh, yes, actually, we, we definitely have something like this. It's There are all of these parallels between what happens in Spain. It's this medieval pilgrimage that has become really popular recently, and it's on this island, and you visit these 88 temples. And I said, oh, do people walk it? And she started to laugh, and she said... Well, in the old days, people walked it. These days, people do it in buses, but maybe some people still walk it. And I said, for various reasons that were going on in terms of my relation to that that first walk, I had thought, you know, I really want to go do something that's harder and more rugged and more remote and do something by myself because this is made so easy by the fact that I'm here with this good friend of mine and we're having a good time. And I thought, like, this is supposed to be more of an aesthetic experience. And I had I'd never been to Japan. I'd always wanted to go to Japan. So I thought, well, now I need to figure out a way to go do this other trip. Because at that point, I, I talk about this in the book, that I had started to feel addicted to the simple life that was just waking up in the morning, knowing that all you had to do was move forward. And it, my so many of my anxieties had fallen away. And I thought, like, oh, yeah, I want to go find more things like this. Yeah, you talk about, you know, there's a line about pilgrimage essentially being a, a form of shock therapy. Yeah. Mm-hmm, for sure. So then I thought, oh, well, maybe I could, maybe there's something here about the secularization of religious pilgrimage and stuff about all, all these nascent ideas I had on the Camino about choice and being surfeited with choice and what it meant to inhabit this old, this old ritual structure that had largely been drained of its religious content. So then I thought, oh, maybe there, there could be a book in this that would be somehow about what it means to be a secular person taking up these religious pilgrimages. So all I knew was I had was almost done with the Camino. I wanted to go do this Japanese thing. So then I went and did a whole lot of research on what other sorts of things I could do. But at that point, I really thought that it was going to be a pretty impersonal, quasi-anthropological thing. That starts to change during the second walk, but it's really in the, the third pilgrimage to Uman where you pretty much just explicitly turn it into kind of a family therapy session. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, but that had never been my intention. I had thought I'd done this Catholic thing and then I'd done this Buddhist thing and I was trying to figure out what what else. The book didn't feel done to me at that point. It felt like there was there was more there. But every so many of the other things I thought about doing seemed really arbitrary and I didn't want it to be... My ideas were not that this was going to be like an episodic, arbitrary thing where I just like pick eight pilgrimages and go see what's going on. And at that point, I also knew I'd been alone in in Japan and it had been really hard to be alone. And that one of the things that I liked so much about walking across Spain with, with a friend and also meeting people along the way was the way that being on the trail changed your relationships with people and led to certain kinds of conversations. And there was a, a certain aspect, there was... The feeling that everybody was in a certain amount of pain that meant that you approached other people with a kind of tenderness and sympathy that you don't always have. So I, I had long had this complicated relationship with my dad, and I thought, well, maybe there's a way that I could go on a trip like this with my dad. And at that point, the book had become about pilgrimage as pretext, as a pretext to get away from home, as a pretext to spend some time you know, thinking about things. And I thought, okay, well, if this book has sort of been become about pilgrimage as pretext, I'm going to use this last one as a pretext to go on a trip with my dad and have a lot of the conversations that we've never had. But given that things were so fraught with him, I kept think- I thought, like, 
I don't want to go do something that's a month of walking with him. I want this <laughs> to be a concentrated thing for a couple of days. Because I thought there was a good chance that it was going to be a disaster. Right. And you also decided, too, that it's like, you know, I, I want my brother here as backup. <laughs> <laughs> well, not ju- actually, not quite, not just as backup, mm-hmm. as like the front line. Because mm-hmm. um, as I say in the book, my my brother is an incredibly endearing guy. And he has a very different relationship with my dad. And there are certain kinds of things that my brother is able to ask my dad or say to my dad because of his disarming manner that, from me, sound really confrontational. So I thought, like, I need him along to ask a lot of these questions that, if I ask them, are likely to spark antagonism. If he asks them, they're likely to be taken as more curious, generous inquiries. I want to backtrack a little bit. Mm -hmm. And go back to the Camino and sort of talk about how it seems like maybe sort of like the best way to bond with a really close friend and also possibly the worst way yeah. to bond with a really close friend is uh, is to walk 500 miles yeah. across Spain. Yeah, for sure. And especially Tom and I really did not know each other that well before we did this. I mean, we'd met in 2003 when I was working at a bookstore in Berkeley and I introduced him on his first book tour. And then after that... We were, we were certainly friendly. We would email. He was always really generous about reading my drafts and talking to me about literary ambition. But I think I'd probably only hung out with him twice in those intervening six years. And then I went to visit him in Estonia largely because he was trapped there. He, he didn't have a visa, so he couldn't leave. So he was begging anyone within a thousand miles of him to come. And we had started, we actually, we'd probably been out of touch for two or three years and had gotten back into touch only after Wallace killed himself. So then, I think he was feeling really low and really lonely, and he said, why don't you come visit? So I barely knew him when I went to come visit, and then by the end of this great weekend we had together, we had agreed we were going to walk across Spain. I don't know what it would have done, how it would have functioned in, in other relationships, but for us it was really great, partially because... We didn't know each other that well, so there was so there was so much to talk about from the beginning. And also, he's just such a companionable guy. Neither of us had a particularly good sense of what we were doing there. Both of us had these vague ideas that we wanted to be writing about it. it I mean, there were certainly moments that we wanted to kill each other. But we have... It's funny what it's done to our friendship now. I mean, I, I just saw him in L.A. a couple of weeks ago where he lives now. And there's a, a tremendous ease to our friendship now, I think, that we just feel like we are totally unruffable, unruffleable because we this friendship was born in this 500-mile walk, basically, that there's nothing he can say or I can say that would phase each other. It's a, it's a very... feels like a very well-broken-in friendship. Another interesting thing about that dynamic is that, you know, while you're taking this 500-mile opportunity to basically go through, like, all those deep-level conversations about each other's lives, you're also both sort of, like, breaking away at moments to, to scribble in your notebooks. Yeah. <laughs> we both had... We both, I think, used our notebooks and the writing that we were doing about the trip as a little bit... As a way to carve out some private space in a trip that felt... You know, in, like, the unrelenting company of the other person. That somehow there was the self-consciousness about representing it later provided a retreat from the, the constant assault of company. And then when you go on the second pilgrimage to the 88 temples, you're doing this alone. I'm assuming your Japanese is conversational at best. Much more limited than that. <laughs> I mean, I had, I had I taught myself two of the alphabets so that I could at least read some signs. And then 
I learned just enough to order food in a restaurant and make a reservation somewhere. I mean, not even conversational. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so basically, like, plunging yourself into strange territory where you don't really know the language. Right. <laughs> other than to, like, find the hotel. Right. And all you know, all you know is, like, you know, here are the arrows, here are the, the, you know, the, the, the street signs. Yeah. Just keep going. Right. And I think, actually, I, I certainly didn't intend this, but one of the arcs of the book after, you know, drafts and drafts and drafts was that I think I had this kind of fantasy in going into it that this was, that you really could get something out of this ritual with no content, that I was looking at it as a purely formal enterprise of you're going to follow the arrows, and that whatever original content this had was had become meaningless or obsolete or whatever. On the Camino, that was a very easy fantasy to indulge because we were with all these other people and because nobody, it seemed, had any investment in, in the religious content. When I was in Japan and I could see that there were these other, these Japanese pilgrims in buses who were not exactly taking it more seriously because I, you know, I felt like I was taking it plenty seriously, but for them it was not just formal. For them it had a lot to do with their relationships with Japanese national culture and with the Japanese past and with their own ancestors and also because so many people in Japan do this after they've retired. So it has a, a very specific relationship to the you know, Japanese ideas about work. So I realized there that I was losing something in my attempt to have something that was purely formal and my estrangement from whatever content there was. So part of the reason that then I went and I did this, um, ended with this Jewish pilgrimage is not that I'm a religious person, but, and I, I certainly was horrified by all of these Hasids in, in Ukraine. But what I wanted to get at there was that there were certain resonant specificities about that trip, about the content of that trip, that then were really meaningful to me. That So the, the book is arced as a transition from a purely formal pilgrimage to an acceptance that this can't be a purely formal enterprise, or you get something different out of it if it's not a purely formal enterprise. Mm -hmm. So I talk, for example, about how Jewish tradition around the Jewish New Year says that you can't ask God for forgiveness before you've asked forgiveness face-to-face -face from the people that you've wronged. A big part of this trip then with my dad was about standing in front of him and having this conversation, not in this abstract way that the Camino invites you to do, but in a very concrete, personal. Really bringing that home in a way, particularly because of the, the nature of the High Holy Days, as you say, there is that whole component of the ritual of forgiveness or the ritualization of forgiveness. Right. These issues in your family drama, in the Freudian sense, you know, these are things that are kicking around in your head yeah. through both of those earlier trips, and it's within this this third trip that they really kind of come to the foreground, and you're like, you know what, we're not going to dance around these, we're not going to like run off to some other part of the world to not deal with these. Yeah, we're going to deal with these today. Yeah, for, yeah, absolutely, and it's but it's it's really funny. This is one of the things where the writing of the book. And the, the constant redrafting of this book, because I probably wrote ten drafts of this over two years, really changed the way that I had looked at the earlier experiences. My first drafts of the um, Spain chapter and of the Japan chapter had almost nothing personal in it. It was really just straight travel. And I did, I did not set out to write a memoir. And then I went on this trip with my dad, and obviously this was incredibly personal. And there, there was virtually no travelogue to that. I when I first sent that material to my editor, she said, This is this is really 
tremendous material, but this book cannot just swerve into memoir two-thirds of the way through. The challenge for you now is to find a way to draw all of this stuff back through the whole book so that we are prepared for the fact that ultimately the book comes to all these conversations with your dad about your family. And my re reaction at first, I was sort of defensive, probably because I didn't want to do all that work, was, well, but the stuff that was going on in the Camino in Japan had nothing to do with my dad. So I don't know how I'm going to go draw all this stuff back when it was totally irrelevant. And my editor, who's an incredibly smart woman, said, well, you know, I, I doubt that. Why don't you go back and look at the emails you were writing about at the time and, and really think about this again? And then I went back and saw, oh, actually, I don't think it was a coincidence that I talked to my dad for the first time in two years while I was on the Camino. And none of that stuff had been in it originally. And then I thought, oh, actually, the more that I thought about it, the more that I realized, like, oh, this whole experience on the Camino actually had so much to do with my relationship with my dad. And it was completely unclear to me at the time, completely unclear to me immediately afterward, and really then took, like, the two years of writing this book to realize how much of that experience had actually been about my dad all, all along. So there was something about... I, I tend to really resist overblown romantic descriptions of writing in terms of catharsis or parturition or whatever, but the literary requirement that I make this book cohere really changed my emotional reaction to what had been going on. Particularly in the later pilgrimages, when you knew that there was a book project involved. Did you have this moment or, or moments of, I guess, split consciousness where you're having the experience, but there's also a part of you that says, I'm going to be writing about this experience. I feel like because what I was doing was so physically challenging that it didn't change. The fact that I was observing this experience as I was having it really didn't change that much. It was an experience that was probably in and of itself imperturbable that way. What did change it is that I remember when I was in Japan sending Tom an email that was just like, this is completely miserable. I'm so unhappy here. I, you know, my, I have toenails falling off. It's raining all day. I can't talk to anyone else. I'm alone all the time. I'm on asphalt. I have to walk through these tunnels. It was really terrible. And he wrote back and said, well, but just remember that the more that of that emotion and the more that emotion can end up on the page, the better off you're ultimately going to be. And I think that just the knowledge that I was ultimately going to have to do some work to help aestheticize the experience allowed me a little bit of move on the pain that I was feeling. It wasn't that it changed the experience, but it was certainly that I think in some, in some ways it made the it made the experience easier to know that that there was some kind of goal in ultimately in all of this. Right. And the Japan part in particular seems like it could be like really brutal that I mean, I get the sense that it's like up at dawn, walk all day, pass out as soon as the sun goes down a lot of nights. Oh yeah, oh for sure. I mean, the Camino was largely like that also actually. Even though a lot of other people were social in the hostels at night, we were just so tired. And I had thought, oh, I'll be able to get a ton of reading done. That was not the case. It was re really hard to read at the end of the day. And especially, really, in, in Japan, it was re sort of regardless of where I was staying, whether I was staying in a in a bus shelter or I had to break into a temple at one point, and then later I started staying more at Japanese inns or business hotels, it was arrive, take a shower, wash my clothes in the shower, spend two hours typing up my notes for the day, queue up email responses to my mom and my brother telling them that I was still alive, and then passing out at 8 o'clock. 
although it seems like the Camino has become a little bit more of a secularized, commodified sort of experience, there is a certain element of that, too, to the 88 Temple pilgrimage. And it seems like for people who read this and feel like they're inspired to follow in your footsteps, there are guidebooks available. There, there's a lot of resources available in case anyone wants to try this. Well, the resources in Japan are pretty limited. There's basically this one English language guidebook, which is less of a guidebook than it is just a map book. And it was produced under the auspices of this local tourism uh, administration there. And it's it's not a great resource. For the Camino, there are tons and tons of resources. There are books, there are websites, there are forums you can find. This was a, a little less true when we did it, but certainly now you can find people who give explicit packing lists to go on the Camino. I've heard from know, a couple of dozen people after the book saying, I'm going to go do the Camino now. Do you have any advice? Or I'm thinking about going to Japan. Do you have any advice? And I've been happy to correspond with these people, especially about Japan. I actually have this little website that I made that was basically like, so you did the Camino and now you're thinking about going to Shikoku. Here's what you have to think about before you go that I wished I had heard about before I went. The main message being it's not nearly as pleasant. <laughs> Yeah, you talked about that phase where you were looking at other pilgrimages that you might be able to do. Is there one that you've kind of got tucked away as like, I'm going to do this at some point? That's a really good question. One of the places that I researched that I would really love to visit is um, the Ethiopian city of Lalibela, which is where in 1187, I think, the recently converted Christian emperor of Ethiopia... Muslims were then controlling Jerusalem, and Christians couldn't make pilgrimages to Jerusalem, so he decided he was going to build the city that was going to be like the new Jerusalem, so that Christians could make a pilgrimage there instead of going to the actual Jerusalem. And this is where these famous stone churches are that are carved out of, carved underground. And I had, there was no way to justify doing that for this book, but I've always really in the acknowledgement section of the book, there's a little line about how you and Tom have, uh, have agreed to do the Camino again this is next summer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> next summer in quotes, exactly. This has become, this has now been three summers of we're going next summer. But I, I would not, I mean, I would really love to do it again. It's become this running joke with us. Who knows? I, I wouldn't be surprised if it happened again. Cool. Well, if it does, I'm sure that there'll be a, a lot of really great uh, dispatches and possibly a great book out of it. So we have been talking with Gideon Lewis Krauss about A Sense of Direction. I'm Ron Hogan, and you've been listening to Life Stories. Tune in again for another Life Stories podcast sometime soon. Thanks.